Don't you understand my English language? Together we can conquer the world and learn so much for science. Be so excited, man. <laughs> um, my feelings are all over the place tonight. The theme tune of the thing from Carpenter has been stuck in my head for the last two weeks. These movies have made me question my career as a podcast host, perhaps more than any other movies in this podcast. <laughs> Great art usually tends to have that effect on the one who experiences it. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Let's let's see what we think about that tonight. I'm I'm really curious to hear your views on this. Actually, that there might be some huge gaps that we will be unable to bridge. But hey, that's typical for this podcast. Well, I don't know. I mean, uh, looking back into the the history of of this podcast and the episodes of the late era, I would say that the the only only real struggle that you and I perhaps might have tonight is is the question which one is the better, the the original or John Carpenter's? Well, not a remake, more of a like adaptation of the original story. Yeah. And maybe we can talk a little bit about the novella. Yeah, by all means. In, in fact, we can we can if if you feel like up to it, we can quickly touch upon the whole the thing as a media franchise or the John Carpenter's the thing as a media franchise because that is basically the whole multimedia franchise that or, or the film on which shoulders the whole multimedia franchise aspect of the thing has been built upon. Yeah. The story, of course, started in 1938 with the Who Goes There novella that the whole The Thing phenomena is based on. Interestingly, there is a notable lack of action scenes. I mean, there are action scenes, but there are very few. And all of these sort of adaptations really do their own baby and interpretation. Uh, very much, yeah. The the one that is is most is is the furthest away from the original source material would be the Howard Hawks film. Yeah, which is so far removed <laughs> about, from from the source material that you can, in, in my opinion, kind of technically already ask like, is it an adaptation of Campbell's short story or is it not? And 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 then the second thing to maybe discuss is that uh, is it fair that Howard Hawks removed it so much from from the novella because i'm not sure that there is so much in who goes there that you would necessarily want to really closely follow it and neither of these these movies do well they they or it's it's really hard to say from the aspect of hawks's film in my opinion but with with john carpenter with, with carpenter i can really say that i i feel that carpenter made an adaptation of the short story not so particularly necessarily the action speeds of the short story there's a <clears throat> like he he does he does take some of them like for example the the crew deciding to 
to destroy all vehicles. But in the short story, it's more of a, well, it's, it's forced to upon the crew. One member sabotages all the airplanes so that no one can leave the camp. But the whole crew just accepts it and goes with it as the right course of action. In Carpenter's film, if I remember correctly, they, nobody actually really sabotages, for example, the airplane. They just, as a group, they decided that nobody's go- going to use, the, use it. But what Carpenter, in my opinion, really takes from Campbell's short story is the feeling of isolation and uh, the aspect of paranoia within the group. And the whole idea of the thing basically being able to assimilate you 100%. Both on cellular level, and even though Carpenter's film never actually touches upon this plot point, in Capital short story, it is the point is being made that the thing is also telepathic. So it can assimilate and mirror and read your thoughts. And, well, Carpenter never does this, but the thing assimilates its victims so closely and so perfectly that you could kind of almost see the telepathy being in, in that film. Carpenter's The Thing is not telepathic, but the way how closely and how perfectly it still assimilates the core you, your behavior patterns, and the way how... Like, almost to a level of your thinking processes. That's how closely the assimilation goes in Carpenter films. So you can kind of see, like, it's not telepathy, but you can kind of see perhaps there's there's like a tiny sliver of it. Would it be far-fetched to say that Terminator 2 has certain origins in The Thing's antagonist, whereas Carpenter has like a faceless monster, can assimilate into anything, any life form or appearance-wise. And in Terminator 2, you have this metallic monster who does have the main form, something that we can identify with. Whereas I think Carpenter's films problem might be, or I think very much is, that the thing can take any forms, and therefore we as an audience have a hard time identifying with the monster. The monster can be anything. It's one of those spectacle visual effects shots where you see like an alien head with the legs of a spider, things like that, and then in the next shot it's something that's coming out of a wolf, something coming out of a person, and etc, etc, and some kind of a totem pole of different faces. So that might be one of my biggest problem points with the 1982. Okay, I, on the other hand, I'm completely on the opposite camp. Like, to me, one of the things that I really do like in, in Carpenter's interpretation is the fact how meticulously he blurs your capability of following the story or following who is assimilated and who is not. And it's it, it has gone into a point where it's become kind of a, like a pet peeve of YouTube, the thing, video content. Where even today people are trying to to piece together the clues and gather the evidence and answer the age-old questions like uh. who had the keys and is Charles assimilated or is he not and who got assimilated first and... There's no answer, who cares? To me, that's kind of a testament of how well Carpenter actually pulled off his film. 
I I do appreciate it because that was a an intentional effort from Carpenter's end. Like there is that old story rumor concerning the the production of of Carpenter's film that well, you have have the scene where the thing is currently is masquerading as the dog mm-hmm. and and wanders around the base, and that's way before the first attack happens. So the dog walks into this room where where one guy is, and you don't see who is in that room, but you can see the man's silhouette contrasted against the wall, and you can see that he pets the dog, which is the first assimilation, the human assimilation. And as the story goes, that shadow belongs to none of the cast members. Carpenter intentionally cast an unknown and unshown member of the film crew into that scene, just so that nobody actually can tell from the shadow who is being assimilated in that moment. That shows intent, and that shows forward-thinkingness from Carpenter's end that I really do appreciate, and because of that I really do enjoy the fact that you can't tell who is the thing in any given moment. The forward thinkingness wasn't there all the time. If you think about the ending of the film, that went through quite a few iterations, at least three that I'm aware of. Uh, in one of those iterations, the, we show how the, the husky, the, the doggy, is running away as, you know, winking to the audience that, yeah, the thing got away. But to give more ambiguity, they decided on this more ambiguous ending. <sighs> Problem is that, well, at least when the thing was in the theaters, none of the endings really were something that the audience wanted to see. Like it, it was too ambiguous. Like some critics were saying, well, so what the hell? Now they're gonna freeze to death, and what kind of end- ending is this? To the test audiences, all the endings didn't seem to work as far as I know. Yeah, that is is one of the famous legacies of Carpenter's film. Like, the critics hated it, and it fa- flopped at box office. Yeah. And Carpenter had to do a whole bunch of films. Like, for example, his really good adaptation of St- Stephen King's Christie, simply because the thing went tits up at the box office, and he somehow had to pay the bills. Once again, one of the reviews where I'm completely different minds with Roger Ebert, Ebert famously hated, and also so did Siskel, this film when it came out, and it it's it's one of those films that have been kind of saved by the cult following that it gathered, like the following decades following the film's original release. Yeah, that's that's the curious case. Everybody seemed to freaking hate this film when it was released. It was made for something like fifty million dollars, and it garnered ninety million dollars. And as we have uh, spoken ad nauseum in this podcast, it probably doesn't mean that it even got its money back because of all the marketing and things that are probably not included in in the overall budget. Or could be. Yeah, uh, I actually couldn't really track how big of the marketing effort for the thing was. Yeah, I couldn't even uh, track what was the box office turnout of of the film internationally. I, I I was checking the box office mojo and it showed that internationally it would have gotten something like 1.2k dollars so either it really didn't have any kind of international circulation basically or or there is just no proper statistics out there but anyway i think it comes down to the problem of uh, i me not liking the the kind of faceless monster I'm not also appreciating really that the characters 
there's little character build up there is really little character development and and it's slow and that there are pieces of extended talking then there's a couple three or four of these big effect pieces which yes i guess are impressive for the time and impressive overall as puppetry impressive still today yeah well but then you go like okay these are impressive but if you look look at this as as just plainly as a film watcher okay you find one aspect that you can appreciate oh look at these effects but that's not mainly why we are in the theater. We are in the theater to appreciate the whole package. I'm I'm not the one going into the audience in the theater and lights go out and I see an amazing effect. I'm never like, wow, how did they make those things? Rather, I I'm trying to kind of I guess assimilate or or become part of the movie's world, taking it in as a whole once again. So yeah, you 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 appreciate the the sense of tension and and paranoia that exists through the film. <laughs> that, like that's that's what what you gravitate toward for, and when you are looking at it, that's like your core thing. Being at the edge of your seat because you don't know who is who is being assimilated, and it's kind of hard to tell. Like, can they even survive against an opponent that is this omnipotent? <sighs> but the, there there's something about the characters that I just I just don't give a fuck. I mean, they have the location of Antarctica, and then you would think that. They would give you this feeling of isolation and paranoia. To a degree, I guess, yeah. But I felt that it was really underutilized. The environment of Antarctica was, wasn't so much used. You have you have the element of cold. You have the element of helplessness when things go break and things like that. But uh, I was looking for something more. I don't know what that something could have been, but it, it doesn't tell you anything about Antarctica beyond that. Yeah, or I I don't know what you were looking at e- for either, and I, therefore I can't help you because, <laughs> by by God, if there is not points that the film brings up about how shitty your situation so easily can be on Antarctica, but McCready is is locked out of the main hub of their center for what half an hour of 20 minutes and he almost freezes to death and no one cares and like they, they are constantly dealing with with the problem of cold and the fact that they can't really see what goes outside of their camp out there in the in the snow and in in the blizzard and that's also an element that the thing tries to use use uh, for its advantage it, it likes to, to stay outside or, or try to move outside because there you can't actually tell who is actually going and where because everybody is constantly wearing like hardened winter jackets and they have the, their glasses on and all of these small pieces of clothing that you gotta hide away your facial features so when you are a small distance away you can't tell who you are actually dealing with. And also that the fact that the snowstorm kind of makes it a nightmare to actually see what goes out there or who goes out there. Yeah, well, it's in, in, interesting because I can't I can't challenge either what you're feeling when you're watching this film. Film you you felt the paranoia, you felt the isolation, 
whereas I didn't. So I guess you identified with the characters stronger than I did for for unknown reasons. Yeah, I I did identify with with MacReady and Jobs. The one thing that I I do admit is the fact that okay, yeah, Carpenter's film is not strong on characterization. Mm. All of the characters are caricatures or stereotypes. Mm. But to me, it's not a hindrance for, for the film. To me, it actually plays in the film's advantage. Because what, what it also does, like even though you don't get a rich lead character, what it does grant you, it grants you a space where that things can actually move on a brisker space. And it also takes away from your opportunity to actually tell who is a good guy and who is a not who is our hero and who is who is not who is going to survive and who is not that actually is one of the problems that i have with the prequel sequel thing which mm. contrary to, to carpenter actually finally has characters and builds its characters yeah and because of that it's kind of in my opinion it's it's more boring film to a point Mm. And it's also more predictable film, to a point. Not completely, like, first time seeing it, I didn't see how the film is going to end and who is going to pull it through, outside of, of course, the dude flying the helicopter and the, the sniper taking aim at the dog at the beginning of the Carpenter film. But outside of that, mm, that was nice. I didn't really know, is, is someone going to actually survive in the prequel? But it kind of loses an element of the cold nature of its violence due to its decision to start to have fleshed out characters. Yeah, but I really appreciate it, actually, in the 2011 version how they tried to flesh out the characters, and I felt that the the whole first act of 2011 film might have been the best best first act out of all of these. Of course, I do really appreciate in Carpenter's version the whole opening with with the husky and the, and the helicopter. That's that that really builds interest in the in the film. I think that's wonderfully done. When I fir- first saw the film, I was just expecting uh, the husky to show the, the helicopter the way. And then when the guy pulls the weapon out, I was wondering, okay, is this guy hungry? Has he lost his mind? What the hell is going on? So that's a great first act. But coming back to the 2011 film, definitely more color in, in the sense of characterization. Uh, yeah, I, on the other hand, I once again strongly disagree with you. It has more color on characterization due to the fact that, you know, it, it has more blatant, obvious characterization. Carpenter's film is not completely void of this, but in Carpenter, the characters that most get, you know, some meat around their bones would be MacReady and Childs. Whereas, yeah, the 2011 version has more traditional, hey, I am a character X, hey, I'm the character Y. But two problems that I have with this whole thing is that, A, even though the 2011 version has more character building in it, it still somehow can't, in my opinion, escape from the same trappings that the, that Carpenter's film knowingly landed, which is the fact that all of the characters still are stereotypical archetypes of what they are. Yeah. You have the Absolutely. science lady who is really good in, in science, then you have the, the man scientist who is like... You shut your mouth, woman. Yeah. Which is the, the clear hero and human antagonist setup. And then then you have 
Edgerton. Yeah, it's it's a bunch of Swedes on a Norwegian outpost, but they have American helicopter pilot for four reasons of X. And even though Edgerton is, he's not really the, the romantic interest for Mary Elizabeth Winstead in the film. Like, they, they don't really fall in love. But oh my god, if the film does not blue ball you into that direction as hard as it possibly can. So basically what you have, you have the typical, typical caricatures. Yeah. And, and the film kind of does that, in my opinion, by accident. And my second problem with the more characters in in your th- the thing film is that, well, this this once again it it comes back to how the violence operates due to the fact that basically uh, the the characters are quite thin in Carpenter's film. It allows the fi- Carpenter's film to have more colder approach to the violence. Violence happens as somebody dies and nobody really mourns anyone. The, the doctor, you know, tries to do CPR and gets his hands bitten off and nobody actually reacts to that. Mm. They react to the thing, they react to the situation, but nobody is like crying over the dead doctor. But imagine if you were, like double the impact, triple. Well, I don't have to, because the 2011 film actually tries to pull that off. Due to an infuriating point, in my opinion. Um. And like one, one good example of this is when uh, Edward Wallner thing, you know, attacks the people at, at the camp. When, when it's revealed to you that Wallner is, is, is at the thing. What, what it pulls off in that moment is like, there, you have that tentacle stab moment. A huge tentacle grows out of Wallner's chest and and stabs two people and these two people are adam finch the young american scientist working for dr sanders research assistant the young american lad that shows up in the opening of the film to tell maria Winstead that you know you should come into this norwegian outpost he's one who dies and the second one is the helicopter pilot friend of etcherton's character played by advale and I can't pronounce the last name, unfortunately. <laughs> and in that moment, like like two deaths, and when Atvale bites it, you get three reaction shots. And Elizabeth Winstead goes to, you know, his bleeding body and he's trying to help, help him and, and stuff like that. So the film is very strongly telling you that, you know, oh my god, tentacle stabbed Atvale. Huge emotional shock. I... And I'm looking at kind, kind of a going like, well, fuck me. First of all, I'm, I'm not feeling anything. And the second of all, because of this, because because they now tell you, oh my god, this character just died. I kind of, it took, takes me away from uh, the situation, or it takes me away from the thing in that situation, who still should be the my, main primary threat. I mean, the Warner thing is still rampaging in that same bloody room, but still, two characters are taking a break from the action just so that they can be appalled by the fact that Adevale just bite it. And I'm kind of like, you know... Guys, hey, get your priorities straight. Uh, to be honest, I didn't feel that was a very strong point to argue about the the film losing its focus. I didn't even really pay attention to the fact when I was watching the film, but noted, yeah. And even though that I, even if I said that you know it has the best character build up out of these films, it still doesn't mean that I care about these characters, unfortunately. Mm. It, it's an interesting film, the 2011 so-called prequel, because 
because basically it is a remake of the thing from Carpenter. It, it's basically the same film. Slightly different, obviously, but it's the same film. Yeah, it is. It is, and, and the points where it's different are the points where it actually shouldn't be different, in my opinion. Because the moments where it differs from Carpenter's movie are exactly the moments where it's just blatantly setting up callbacks to the Carpenter's movie. The most infamous of these, in my opinion, is the Edgerton gets the axe stuck on the wall moment. Like Edgerton is, is reaching to pull the, the axe from the wall, and, and Mary Elizabeth Winstead just goes like, no, leave it, because it's there in the, in the Carpenter's version. Yeah. It's a callback, and then they are like, okay. Yeah. And outside of like those moments, it's pretty much, it's, it's almost beat for beat, Carpenter's film. If moving on uh, to different gears a bit, then there is the thing with music. Ennio Morricone is hired to do the soundtrack for 1982. Apparently doesn't have a freaking singlest clue of what Carpenter wants. Comes up with some ding-dong sounds and then, you know, 90% of the soundtrack is scrapped. It's released years and years later. Many critics seem to seem to say that it's really repetitive and uh, not interesting. Of course, if you can't identify... If you don't have the scenes to connect the music to, then in many cases, soundtracks can be kind of meaningless because you don't have the emotional connection there. It's, it sounds like a soundtrack that wasn't created with a lot of intent. That Ennio Morricone just didn't wake up one morning and said, this is exactly how it should sound. Instead, it was just, let's put something together. And so he did. And I'm surprised that people are all excited about it. Carpenter indeed took most of it out, then just used the main theme, maybe a couple of other small pieces of music. And then Carpenter and um, Alan Howard, they added a couple of, you know, basically sound effects there. And that's it. Yeah, but then again, that quite often that is the story behind the famous film scores. Oh, that is the situation behind the famous film scores. Either A, they're really simplistic, or B, they are loud and bombastic, but the part that everybody remembers and the part that gets everybody's hearts pumping is just like a small snippet from the overall score. Yeah. That the B applies to Indiana Jones scores, where the dee 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 it's just a small part of it. It applies to Robocop score, where the... Is just a really small part of it. It applies mm. to the Conan score. Or on the other hand, the A, they are really simplistic and yet they are hugely rememberable. Well, it applies to the thing that the, the score is really, really simple. But so was the score of Halloween, which was just basically Carpenter just hitting two notes on a fucking electric keyboard. Which got vastly improved in the sequels when instead of dun dun dun, you got the dun 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 mega mix. <coughs> yeah, um. it's, 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 it's many of the gifts that Rob Zombie grand, uh, gave us. <laughs> uh, him, him too. I wanted to pick on the whole science thing in these movies, this, or the uh, science with a Z at the end. The demonization of, of science in these films, and making the science the stupid-as-fuck science. Also, the scientist also being, as a character, mainly stupid, maybe 
bar from 2011 version, but it's always some evil genius who wants to, you know, rule over everyone else and take the samples and ruin the whole fucking thing. Everybody hates him and then the movies become really anti-science and we should fear scientists and at least building that kind of negativity towards science. Yeah, just, just a small clarification there for our listeners. Curry tried to say, like, like it may have sounded like Curry said 2011, but what Curry was really trying to say was 1982. And especially 1951. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, if, if you want to play with this kind of worms, you basically have to go all the way back to, you know, the original novel. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The, yeah. the first depiction of, of the scientists. From all of these, these basically, the, the different sources of the story, well, we, we are dealing with, with a telepathic shape-shifting alien. So I don't know exactly what, what is the exact exact genetic pattern of that type of a thing. Unfortunately, I left my hydroelectric gene sequencer at my other flat, so it's not here with me now today in, in at studio. And therefore, can't exactly say exactly how accurate the science around the situation and around the thing is in the novel. But it's sound enough, like that the logic that they operate is sound enough that you can kind of believe that, yeah, these are people who are trying to think their way around the situation. I I, I don't feel that it really demonizes the, uh, the science or the scientists. In, in fact, in the novel, the, the scientists, even though... they. They do panic and they do some pretty drastic actions, like, for example, disabling every mode of transportation out of the base. But that still actually is is pretty smart move in that situation. You don't want the thing to escape. And that's also my take kind of with Carpenter's version version of the story. It doesn't really have a scientist character outside of Blair who... Well, goes crazy, crazy and gets locked off from the rest of the group. But MacReady's logic behind his his blood test is not actually that bad. And I don't think that Blair really is that much demonized in Carpenter's film. Like certainly, yeah, he, he goes crazy and, and messes up the place. And eventually he is revealed to be ha- having been assimilated at least at some point of the story. But his mental breakdown at the same moment when he realizes exactly how dangerous the situation is if the thing manages to escape. In my opinion, it's kind of a justifiable. The films that actually have less favorable look on the scientists, in my opinion, is the 2011 version. Where, mm. first of all, the whole science thing around the thing goes into a dick-waving competition. The, 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 there is definitely no science. Every time someone is doing the sciencing, it happens in about four minutes. And the so-called scientist determines from the available evidence that, yes, this is a shape-shifting, transforming, assimilating, copying monster that uh, is, first of all, one piece but can be split into millions of pieces. And all of these separate pieces are also intelligent beings that can also multiply and think and do, in their world, rational decisions for their survival. Yeah, so, that, that, that is an argument. But counterpoint to your argument, 
they were bloody right at the end of the day. And we are talking about that at source material, also telepathic shapeshifting alien. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so uh, the, the, the optimal laboratory procedures are not necessarily a focal point of the scientific research in this one situation. I definitely don't don't find the source novel, the source material, to be in any way like a, like a holy element. It's really one of those really escapist, simple little sci-fi books that have been released like millions of times in, in those times and with the most simplest imagination. Like, this is like so run-of-the-mill, this book, that I don't know what to say, man. Like, these kind uh, of... Well, 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 the first thing you can say is an apologies, an apologize from, from Campbell's, at this point, rotting bones. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there was a point where the, why these guys were writing under pseudonyms at the time. Of course, later on, I don't know, was it after the 1982 film or what, then they were, they were okay to come out that, yeah, it was me who wrote this shit. There is the fear of the ugly, obviously, in all of these versions, the fear of the different and of course it's a monster from outer space that wants to kill the humans yeah and this goes for many of the big hit scientific sci-fi movies out there so yeah i i I, I don't remember you you crying after body positivity in bloody alien i know (laughs) but you know maybe the difference is that it just comes so to your face here that Especially all the predictions, not science, but their predictions that are quite detailed, I might add. All of them come to be, which is hilarious. They surmise that this, this monster is copying and multiplying and uh, or is a fucking carrot and, and is eating cabbages. It all comes to be. <laughs> like, well, o- o- of course it comes to be. The men of science are doing science. <laughs> Like I'm, I'm, I'm starting to get get, get where where your major hang up here here is is coming from. It's a, it's, that's that's no. that's from the fact that you you read the short story first. I did, and yeah, well, bloody me! See see how how this whole the thing sci- science logic actually plays out in real life. I must right away able to deduct this little nugget of information. But you read it first, and you agreed with Blair. When you were reading that, that was like your totem animal. And Blair has the whole tangent about how rest of the group are, are fat shaming and the thing and are in no way body positive and they are just, you know, thinking that it's hostile simply because it's ugly as fuck. <laughs> and and that's, that's the core tangent that you, you carried with you throughout the whole experience of going through the different iterations of the thing. Well, well Or Campbell's short story. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. Of course, I've seen 1951 and 1982 versions before. This was the first time when I had the guts to go and look at the 2011 version. But I mean, the overarching point is that we're talking about a seven-tentacled hand monster with that three-foot tongue, uh, three glaring red eyes, and weird pasta hair, whatever, wa- yeah. waving behind it. Like th- Yeah, that, and I, I look at that thing, and the first thing I think about is a communist. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> which is which is in keeping the tone of the making of these films. <laughs> so that's the starting point. And 
Then we go to more absurdity in the 1951, the first adaptation to, to film. There are these similar things that were four minutes of sciencing and then you make the prediction that this monster is evil and wants to kill you. And Except that in 1951 version, it's basically a vegetable that we're de- dealing with. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a vegetable with a human build throughout the film. So there's no shape-shifting, mm-hmm. none of that. It apparently is able to copy itself to other earthly vegetation. And, or, or it can it, it leaves spores that it can plant in the earth soil. Something like and that. I, I guess grew more things had it had a chance and time. Anyway, a vegetable with a human build in this film. A violent vegetable, a carrot, basically. An intelligent vegetable, intelligent in quotation marks. A carrot that kills cabbages, yes. Uh-huh. Consumes human blood for survival and growth. Yeah, it's it's kind of like the, the film Killer Tomatoes, except made seriously. <laughs> yeah, like. But seriously, aliens deserve to be demonized. They are aliens. <laughs> yeah, but there is no need to be trying to figure out the shape of this thing. A holy cat! It's just a man in a costume, and there's still yep. just like like what three different moments where he pops up. Yeah, granted, the special effects were really not up to par, or the budget was not up to par, at least, during that time to make any more interesting of an alien creature, yeah. But uh... it, it, it also was not, like, the the tone of the times. Like, like back in those days, if, if you made a creature feature, it either was a dude in a lizard costume, a la Godzilla, or if you were in in US, it was a man in a mad costume. Yeah, yeah. A la Frankenstein, Dracula, whatever, the creature from Black Lagoon, and the thing from the other world. Yeah, this is coming on the heels of those times when you had the Roswell incident in the 1940s. End of the 1940s, I believe. And then we go go to this phenomenon when... There's quite a lot of science fiction movies coming out around that time. The day the Earth stood still and uh, what have you, the invasion of the body snatchers and things like that. But still, like the the lack of a powerful villain in this film, it, it hurts the film because the rest of the film is not there to, to support it. Like you, you have endless scenes where people are, are talking and trying to wonder what kind of thing they're dealing with. And they go on and on and on. And of course, they are off their time. But goddamn, it starts to irk me with these predictions that, or actually just plain statements that this is how it's gonna be. This is what we're dealing with. You can quote me on that on, on fucking nature. You have these medium full shots and full shots endlessly that start to get awfully repetitive. I know it was the times. You didn't yeah, have. Yeah, it was uh, the times. Absolutely. Cinematography was what it was. Also, maybe you didn't have the resources to take, you know, different angles. You just put the camera somewhere and shoot. Uh, one of the reasons why I actually like I, I've been waiting to touch upon with you the the nineteen fifty one version. It's because they... before I've said that this is my favorite out of the three. But... Precisely! Precisely! God damn it! it we, are, we are an hour into this episode. I'm <laughs> waiting when we are going to touch this can of worms. There is a, there's an old episode of this very podcast where you, <laughs> at least in the recording session, you stated that this is your favorite version of, of the thing. <clears throat> 
Okay. And, uh, and now, now we are now we are fucking finally talking about the goddamn bloodthirsty human-sized carrot. <laughs> okay, I, I I will address this little conundrum. So I watched the Carpenter's The Thing, the first out of these versions. That was like a long time ago, twenty-five years odd or something. And then much later, maybe just like the last ten years, I watched the. Howard Hawks version. I just remember watching from the Finnish telly the 1982 version and being really bored watching it. Uh, I couldn't remember a single goddamn thing from it. Then I watched the Howard Hawks film and I'm like, dude, this is actually a pretty good film and was more engaging than the 1982 version. Maybe it was just the state of mind that I was in. I remember watching the Howard Hawks version and, and, and being like, really focused and I, I had really good focus that that day and I was really into watching this film. I had seen the little clips in 1978 Halloween and you know I was kind of curious about the film's world but now coming back to the whole trilogy of films what I think about the Howard Hawks version now well yeah I don't know what I was smoking that day but definitely not the best version out of this. <laughs> I'll take that back right now. Yeah, uh, because my ex- experience with the the thing movies adaptations is similar to you. Most likely, just like everybody else in Finland, my first experience with the things was Carpenter's 1982. Dur- during my first time, I was really young. I couldn't even watch the whole film. It just came from from the TV, and it happened to be the the moment when the dog gets his his hands bitten off. The small head grows from the from the dude's chest, and his neck tears off, and the head lingers on the floor. That was way too graphic for me. <laughs> like it's it's one of those things that have or, or those scenes that have always been stuck on my young mind because. I, I don't know, perhaps I got a bit traumatized seeing that hardcore violence at a su- such of an early age, simply because my parents were not in the room to turn off the telly the moment I was channel surfing. <laughs> but that was my original experience with any the thing related. And later on, of course, you know, I checked out the whole film, I really liked it. But by that time, I was already aware of the 1951 version. I, I knew that there was this black and white film, and then I checked it out to see, because, you know, see the original version of the Carpenter film that I really liked. I was so bloody disappointed oh, with yeah. the 1951 version. I, I knew it was going to be a rough ride already when I pressed play, because I had seen some images from the film, and I knew that the thing is going to be, once again, some type of a Frankenstein yeah. type of a creature. And I was like, oh... And then when the film went on and, and we hit, you know, the the whole super carrot aspect of it, and I was like, oh, oh, my God. oh, my God. This is so bad. And I still, you know, stemming from that experience, I still don't think that the 1951 uh, version is a masterpiece. But now, having revisited the film for this podcast... I have to say that my attitude towards the 1951 have actually softened. Okay, yeah. Not to a point where I I still would, you know, champion it as a, as a great film. I do still... It, it still irks me that the thing in, in the movie is just, you know, basically a Frankenstein. 
and the, and the simplicity of the plot kind of is, is like, yeah, it's the times, but it kind of crunched my gears. And the fact mm. that these days I can kind of appreciate and understand the whole, it is plant-based aspect <laughs> of it. But I still can't get around the fact that we are dealing with an intelligent and violent carrot here. Yeah, like you, there are aspects that I like about the 1951 version. There is a certain tone, some part of the tone that I do like. I uh, Maybe the kind of darkish cinematography... I like some of the some of the shots. I do like the overlapping dialogue, uh, which I didn't really particularly register when I was watching it. But then I read about it uh, later, and I, then I was like, "Oh, oh, yeah." And then you go and think back to Halloween 1978. Actually, there's overlapping dialogue there. I think it works to a great effect to you know get into the w- world of the film. Partly, but then there is this awful dialogue and you know overly simplistic plot and, and really easy characterization of the monster it's it's such a b-movie that it most definitely is but it, it also is a b-movie that is proudly a b-movie or at, at least is that today i don't really know how the film how how howard hawks perceived the film back in 1951 when he made it or produced it yeah. Everybody always grants the film to to Howard Hawks, but at yeah. the end of the day, Howard Hawks only produced it. The, the director is Christian Nyby. So, <clears throat> yeah, Howard Hawks is the thing. Man just, you know, put in the front of the money. Yeah, well, there's there's that kind of a age-old argument who actually was the director behind the scenes. Was it Christian Nyby or was it Howard Hawks? Okay, I, I'm not actually familiar with that argument. Okay, well, because it's such a Howard Hawk-ish movie, people tend to say that it's not actually created or directed by Christian Nyby for the most part. Also, Christian Nyby was inspired by Howard Hawks, but, and uh, Christian Nyby, by his own words, says that it, that's exactly what it was. He was inspired by Howard Hawks, and he used a lot of Howard Hawks tricks to put the movie together. So that's why it feels like Howard Hawks movie. That could be it. Also, during those times, before the internet age, for for some reason, people had a weird tendency to stick to lies and be absolutely appalled about things, absolutely feel awkward about things. There were people who were associated with this film feeling really awkward about the end result and, and didn't want anything to do with it, didn't want to answer in interviews uh, on the questions about the film. I don't really see that kind of strong reactions today anymore. If there was such of a circulating rumor that Howard Hawks would have been the actual director of the film, out of, you know, possible huge shame, I think Christian Nyby would never tell you that, no, I didn't direct the film, actually. I had nothing to do with it. I just sit by the sidelines and took the credit for credit's sake. So uh, I don't know what to think. Could, could be that Christian Nyby directed, could be that he didn't. Yeah. I do know that Nyby was, was taking a lot of inspiration from New, uh, Hawks and looking up to him. Perhaps wanting to imitate him. Another thing is also that back in the days, like, like already mentioned, it's shot kind of in a traditional 1950s style. Yeah. But you mentioned the tone of of 
the 1951. And seeing how we, we are talking about all, all three films now as a lump, jumping from one film to the next and back to another. Actually, something that I do really like in both the 1951 and the 1982 versions, and something that, in my opinion, kind of works against the 2011 version, is that the first two movies, in my opinion, are quite obviously childs of their time. Like, when it comes to the tone and the attitude that those films have. That's definitely there, like, that these are so much of, of their time. There is a certain amount of time that has passed between all these movies that makes these quite different for, from each other. Yeah, they work as a, a kind of a interesting time capsules Yeah, into their respective time periods. But before Hawks made made and Nibi directed the original film, people often like to lump these films, especially movies from the 1950s and 1960s, into the fact that the U.S. was going through the Cold War with the USSR. Yeah, you can, in my opinion, you can kind of see that the shift in time when when watching Hawks' version of of the thing. Nineteen forty nine, they they form NATO, and nineteen fifties Mar- is is the time when McCarthy uh, goes into the into the meeting of Republican Women's Club and and pres- presents his infamous. Document where he states that there's a whole bunch of communists lurking inside the State Department, starting the whole paranoistic Red Scare, the second Red Scare within the United States. 1951, the the first adaptation of the thing comes out, and in my opinion, you can kind of see the innocence of those days still, like like the the pre full on Red Scare innocence in in Hawks's film, where well that that. The journalist is is just hanging around in Alaska, walks into the officer's club and he's like, any any good news stories for me? And the first officer is like, hey, I just got called into a science outpost at the Antarctica, why don't you check along? And the journalist is like, oh, gee, Willis, general, <laughs> lieutenant man, of course I check along you into military inspection of, of an outpost. And and then there's the the scientist who turns evil, and you kind of have that element of the institution turning against our heroes when when the scientist wants to protect the thing, and he even talks into you know the high brass of the military, and they take the scientist's side and tell our heroes that you are not to harm the thing, because we wanna study it and try to understand it, etc., etc. Kind of escalating the situation, but you still have that innocence at the end of the film. When, you know, the thing punches out the, the science man, and they, they finally defeat it, and then the journalist takes the radio. And they all agree that even though, you know, yeah, the scientist man kind of screwed everybody over and put lives in jeopardy, but we, we shouldn't really, really name him and point any fingers here. Just say that he heroically got injured when fighting the, the bloody alien, and the journalist man does this, and then he goes in and basically through the radio tells the whole world that outside in, in some backwoods of Alaska, they just, you know, kicked E.T.'s ass. <laughs> and just everybody just believes him, and believes his warnings that keep watching the skies. Unfortunately, no one will be believing the story or might not believe the story. 
because of the dumbass journalist who never manages to take a picture of the bad guy in the suit. But I, 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 know, I mean, in, in my that's... opinion, the tone of the ending is that they all believe the journalist. Yeah, of course, the journalist is the is the, is the comedic effect of the movie. So yeah, I get it. Yeah, I mean, logically, of course, you are correct. The world at large would be demanding some evidence. <laughs> that, you know, extraterrestrial life really does exist. But in my opinion, that the tone of that ending is that, no, everybody just believes the journalist when he tells that, you know, yeah. aliens real. Yeah, but, but the tone with, with the thing... The tone is, with the thing, is, it's it's very comedic. So what do you feel about that? I, I feel that it actually is quite fascinating when contrasted to, you know, the sci-fi films that came shortly after it. Hmm. Like, take, for example, uh, 19... When was it bloody? 1956. Uh, after the thing releases, mm. USSR forms the, the Wars of Pact. That mm. happens in 1955. So 1956 comes out uh, the next really big legacy sci-fi film from US. You have, may have sometimes heard it. It's yeah. called The Invasion of Body Snatchers. And that film, unlike Howard Hawks' The Thing, Invasion of Body Snatchers is really cynical and really mm. like, beware thy neighbor. You know, the comic can lurk everywhere. Mm. Your neighbors get assimilated and they are taking the whole community and you can't trust anyone. It has pretty strong tone of that there. Both of these stories, The Thing and Invasion of Body Snatchers, are meant to be stories that deal with paranoia. That is, the paranoia is in the heart of Campbell's short stories. And it kinda is also in 1951's The Thing, but at the end of a day, Howard Hawks' version ends with a hopeful and positive no note. All the chums come together and, you know, they are willing to hide away what the scientist man did and how he jeopardized everybody's lives. And then you have the invasion of body snatchers. Yeah. Which is like this ultra paranoid. Your, your wife has been taken, neighbors have been taken, then do dog has been taken type of approach into the situation. And then you have the Carpenter version. So, following 1960s, we enter 1980s, US severs diplomatic relations with Iran, and uh, Jimmy Carter promises to respond any Soviet aggression against American allies in Middle East, because that was, you know, the days of the Afghan war. The, the, the second, uh, 22nd Summer Olympics are being held in Moscow, US boycotts them and does not attend. The whole world actually almost gets destroyed in, in nuclear war because a device fault causes US defense computers in several locations to report an incoming nuclear attack from Soviet missiles. So trying to drive to the point that people didn't want these nihilistic stories at the time and that's why the film also I, I, failed. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to point that coming to 1982 when Carpenter makes his film, US have, has become increasingly isolated and has stayed really paranoid from the 1950s. The, the paranoia still is there, but now basically you have the mass destruction and isolation going on. 
And also you have the, the 1981, which is the birth of the AIDS epidemic. Yeah. And so, so to me, 1982 version, Carpenter's version of the thing is kind of a, a culmination of all of this. Mm. It's the film where the, the isolation is all time high. The paranoia also is all time high. Oh boy, are these people paranoid in, in Carpenter's version. But at the same time, Carpenter's version is kind of critical of the whole paranoia thing. McCready almost dies in, in course of the film because the rest of the group at the outpost believe that he has been assimilated, so they leave his ass outside. They block him outside so he can freeze to death. One person asks Charles, like, what if we are wrong? And Charles responds that then we are wrong doesn't matter, and McCready has to break his way into the compound, basically threaten to blow himself up and take everybody with him. So they are all hyper paranoid, but at the same time there is an element of criticism towards the paranoia. To, to be honest, I, I would heavily challenge the, the claim that in any of these movies there would be anything semiotic to a- analyze. But I, of course, the audience reaction, for example, in the case of 1982 version, sure, I can perfectly see how it would have been related to, for example, the thing that we, I think we still didn't mention is the recession of the time, which could have led to people looking for something more warm-hearted like E.T., which came out in the same year, or was it 1980? This might have been the reason the nihilistic aspect didn't communicate with the audiences. Yeah, could be, could be. The E.T., now that you mentioned, it came out in 1982. Yeah, okay. Right at the same year that Carpenter's version came out. Yeah. And E.T. was a huge box office hit. Oh, boy. Which also had the, the kind of a tone that, uh, oh, my God, the, uh, oh, my God, the government. Yeah, that's definitely there. But I, I don't know. I, I do think that there is actually quite a lot to dissect in the first two adaptations. Just in the same way how the Carpenter's 1982 version also has the theme of purity, especially genetical purity, which, which exists in in MacReady's blood test. And the fact that the, the, the thing blood is reacts in such of a hostile manner to heat. But also, you can kind of stretch it out. And I, I admit, it is a, uh, stretching it out. But you can also see, once again, also the theme of uh, ideological purity there. Like, you can take the thing and, and the assimilation and how one drop of the thing's DNA can corrupt you and the, and the whole ecosystem. You can kind of see it as, as a communism. Insert yeah. communism here. Yeah, well, there are people who claim that Carpenter's movies have a ton of, of symbolism. And then Carpenter himself is always there to d- deny that, no, I didn't mean any of that shit. I just wanted to make a fun movie. So, yeah, but figure. then again, you know, Carpenter is just basically a douche who pulls that stunt off simply because he disagrees with this podcast <laughs> take on, on Halloween and how the whole film is a metaphorical transformation of Michael Myers from a knife-wielding murder man into a le- legendary boogeyman of the slasher films. I didn't mean any of that. I'm just a hippie capitalist. Well, that's what you said, and that's also why you disagree with my deep take of your film version of the thing. <laughs> yeah, but I kind of like, I love that, that 
at least Carpenter doesn't take the high road of, yeah, I meant every single thing that you just said, and my film is so smart and absolutely oozing of symbolism. I didn't mean any of that. This was just a Thomas Briggs horror movie. And that's where, where the director of the said movies is wrong, and this podcast is right. Well, <laughs> interestingly, <laughs> Carpenter, in an inter- interview uh, following the release of the film, was actually shocked that the mo- movie didn't succeed at the box office. And it seemed to impact him heavily, and might be still impacting him. Of course, he knows that you know on ho- home video it was a big success, and do that. My dear Henrik, I need to add why that might be and why the opinion has changed so drastically in the last 40 years. So let's go. I think there's two factors. The first factor is the thing. It's the title. It's a, the title and the cover that sells. People go, like, oh, oh, the thing. Yeah, interesting. Let's go. And then there are kiddies of the 1980s who watch this film. They have freaking nightmares. They love it. Maybe they're like Henrik watching it, you know, somebody forgot the TV on. And uh, parents are really enjoying themselves uh, feeding all kinds of horror movies to their kid. Yeah, I, I yeah. don't know what my parents were doing at the time. <laughs> and and then years later, people go back and their soul is looking for what are the best films, what are the best horror films that I have ever seen? and What could be the best horror films out there, period? And because the selection of which you could pick those golden horror movies, there are so few of them that your brain goes back to your childhood. Aha, the thing. Because I freaking loved it. It had great special effects and it affected my mental stage at a young age. And that's why it's a fantastic horror film. Uh, But by cards, man, the history is full of great horror movies. Well, I'm trying to make the point that I th- I think the thing is nothing special. 1982 Carpenter, it's 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 well made. The st- structure is good, but it's not so good that I would raise it on a pedestal and say, hey, this is one of the greatest horror or thriller movies ever made. I don't know where so, that's coming from, honestly. So, I can't so, understand it. So this is the moment, you know, as a part of the background research for today's episode, I actually went on and I, I checked out Miriam Webster's definition for the word of wrong opinions. <laughs> the definition went, most of Curry's opinions when it comes to movies. So dear here, listeners, you are seeing the master as his craft. Yeah, but okay, Henrik, ball to you. Why is this one of the greatest horror movies ever made? Full stop, period. Period, full stop. Because it really well nails down that the feeling of isolation and and paranoia. It's extremely suspenseful because you don't actually know who is assimilated and where the attack, the, uh, attack comes from. That the attacks in this film are really surprising when you see it the first time, because, like I said, you don't know who is assimilated. But at the same time, the violence is really cold, and it ha- has really good special effects. And it's also a film that tonally, uh, through its violence, is actually the closest one to Campbell's short story. 
It, it operates like you would think a novel operates. But as the story progresses, as the paranoia is meant to set in with the characters, the whole narration of the story, it becomes more quicker, it becomes more jumbled, it becomes a hell of a lot messier, to a point where all of that is, is intentional degeneration of the prose in Campbell's story to mirror the whole mental effect that the situation has on its characters. And 1982, John Carpenter kind of does exactly that. With its uh, jumbled uh, way of telling its story. You lose the time frame, you almost lose the chronological order of events, you lose any sense of actually following who is assimilated and who had the keys and who actually sabotaged the blood samples before the first test and when was Blair assimilated. It, it all becomes messy and in my opinion it becomes messy in order to mirror Campbell's story. Um, and those uh, are the many reasons why John Carpenter's The Thing from 1982 is a bloody masterpiece oof well <clears throat> oh wow that's I haven't heard you say that like almost ever in this podcast masterpiece and, you... and actually actually I have entire multimedia franchise to prove my point I bet you do I bet you because have also, days... also those comics related to this actually yeah yeah oh my god because because these days even though we don't really remember it or we don't really acknowledge it but the thing it is a multimedia franchise and when i say the thing i actually mean john carpenter's the original because that's the source where all of this this stems from we we have Five different comics. We have The Thing from Another World, which is a not-so-great follow-up to, to Carpenter's film. We have Climate of Fear, which is actually quite good follow-up to Carpenter's film. We have Eternal Wolves, which I haven't read, but I'm, I'm aware of its infamous nature and the whole thing falls in love and yet the bullshit aspect of it. We have questionable research and we have the Northman Nightmare, which came out in 2015 or somewhere around that time period. So it's relatively new comic. We, we have one official video game, which is actually quite good. We have three different board games, plus a board game module for Final Girl, which is also actually, well, quite, quite good board game. We have... One sh uh, short story collection called Short Things, which actually has some really good good stories there. We, we have unofficial sequel short story to Campbell's novella, The Things, which actually follows the movie's happenings from The Things perspective. And while not a 100% masterpiece, is still actually pretty good take into the perspective of the thing. And then with 2011, we also uh, version we also have Harbinger Down, which is a thing-esque sea vessel horror film from the practical effects studio that made the effects for the 2011 version that were then, you know, painted over with, at times, uh, quite okay, at times horribly bad CGI. So, so we have all of this content, and only Harbinger Down comes from the 2011 film, or a film other than John Carpenter's version. Yeah, the CGI was never really my problem with the 2011 version. The, the CGI is the aspect 
of 2011 version that usually gets pointed fingers at when everybody tries to explain why the film does not work. While I do admit that the CGI at times is really bad, okay. I, I I know it's 2011 from 2011, but even back in the day, there were CGI shots that I really thought that Oh my god, that is lackluster. But the reason why the 2011 version does not work, it's not just the CGI. No, no. In my opinion, it's also the characters, it's also the tone of the film. Yeah, whereas I think that 1992 film, I do think that that the Carpenter film, though, does almost everything better than the 1951 version. And... I would even say that thanks to Dean Cundey's work, a certain atmospheric thing going on, kind of like a, some um, soundscapes and things from 1981's Halloween 2 are still noticeable here. So I do enjoy all that. And, and Dean Cundey's eye to the sets where he wanted some pipes into the picture and something that makes it look a little bit more grueling, I guess. But the movie just fails to be fun for me. I think it's a dull movie, and I think all of these movies are, in some sense, dull. And I, I understand you're coming the, the point you are coming from. You explain your your side very well. I don't know. I just don't agree with you at all. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it becomes so subjective with these films. There's things that I like. There's a lot of things that I don't like. I'm constantly. It's just really hard to you know nail it down. What to say about this film because it's so all over in your head that you don't know where to goddamn park your car. Ah, oh, it's infuriating. But do you want some quickies? Well, yeah. Why not? The performance pedestal. I'll say. Kurt Russell, even though there's not much characterization, but I enjoy looking at his performance. Uh, also for me, Kurt Russell, if I would have to pick someone else, I would take Keith David, who plays Childs in the exact same movie, which is Paranoia and Isolation. I didn't really like... They, they are meant to be an element in 1951, but I didn't quite feel it. It's not there in 1951 because it it gives a lot of room for for the comedy for for sure. It might be a little distracting at points when the lady goes like, oh, what was it? Let me look it up. In the middle of the final scene, lady goes like, if I start burning up again, who will put out the fire? Oh. <laughs> I I like the location. But, uh, I don't know, fucking destroy the whole base and try to run into some caves or... Uh, I was missing you, you, something. You freeze to death if you try to do that. <laughs> so, Henrik, did you think that MacReady was the thing all along? I haven't uh, heard the actual explanations on why some people might think that, but I didn't get that. I, I also didn't feel that. I'm hesitant on calling the shots on the question is child's the thing like i i know i know 15000 youtube videos have tried to answer the question and analyze <laughs> the film in order to answer the question i haven't seen any of those i, I automatically skip them and I, yeah. I have to confess that as a as an analytical film critic yeah. i haven't been able to actually make my mind has charles been assimilated 
<laughs> that, however, is is a plot point that basically any every other part of the, the multimedia franchise aspect of it apparently seems to be able to make its mind on. Like in, in all the comics, it turns out that Childs is assimilated. In, in the video game, he wasn't. You find his uh, frozen corpse at the end of it, but McCready somehow pulls it off. It seems to be a subject that Carpenter is a little cagey about as well. He, he doesn't want to disclose who he thinks or knows is the uh, the thing at the end, if so. But kind of like touching on some of your points, like one thing I'm sort of sick of are, are these pop culture junk movie watchers on YouTube. You know, the, this type who gets excited about cool effects and then they, they appreciate the trashy dialogue and get all excited about it. They cling on to this, to what I see, like micro aspects of the movie and then somehow they praise the movie as a whole to, to high heavens uh therefore the movie is the best ever like the, the <laughs> i just uh. well, well welcome to this very podcast yeah basically my stick from episode to episode <laughs> i also kind of like the third act connection of 2011 the thing to 1982 the thing i really really hated them <laughs> the, the aspect i i did like in 2011, is the fact that they come up with another way to deduce who is who has been assimilated. They, they don't have to use the blood test from Carpenter's film, because they, they figure out the whole whole teeth filling thing aspect. And I, I honestly, honestly, that is cleverness from the writer's end. Mm. One of the best aspects of 2011, and, and an aspect that does not get credit enough, is the fact that they find a way to, to deduce who might be assimilated and who is not, without needing to use the, the blood test from Carpenter movie. Yeah, I think the thing without the blood test made made a, a little bit more sense in the 2011 version versus the blood test where they expect something to jump out of the blood to determine if somebody is infected or not or whatever they are expecting to happen. What didn't work, Henrik? Ah, uh, well, what was again? It's it's we're talking about three films, so. To kind of jump all over the place. In 2011, what didn't work was the prequel aspect. In my opinion, it is the biggest hindrance of the film. And if it would have chosen to be anything else except a prequel, it could have opened its, you know, arms to a way stronger and way wider array of plot lines. It could have been the thing on a submarine. It could have been... The thing, but in New York, it could have been the thing, but in space. Had mm. it not chosen to be a prequel to Carpenter's film, which automatically ties it down into Antarctica. In in 1951 version, what didn't work? Well, my, my biggest, biggest problem with the film was, and still is, two things. A, the thing is just, you know, a Frankenstein, except... Impervious to bullets, which kind of was Frankenstein's monster also. And the, the, the second thing is the kind of a jovial nature of it all. It's it's kind of a charming, the innocence of it all. But at the same time, it to me, it really harms the, the possibility of having a horror effect with the movie. 
Yeah, for me, like I've mentioned kind of everything, but many things didn't work. and But the characters didn't work in any of these films to full effect. And the antagonist certainly didn't work in any of these films to full effect. One thing that I will mention also that, that did work uh, in 2011 version in a way was the stupid but entertaining moment when they went to the spaceship. Because since 1951 version, I've been like, can you go to the goddamn spaceship? Of course, in 1951 version, they blow it up. Oh my gosh. Uh, we, we got a different setting. To, to me, the last third of that film is like the most <laughs> the worst part of the movie. It reaches the peak stupidity when they reach the spaceship. Uh, Henrik, the peak is still to come when we get the kind of Prometheus slash alien covenant type of uh, origin story for the aliens. I mean, I want to I wanna see that, a vegetable on a spaceship. How does that work? O- or this kind of a shape-shifting monster. What kind of a thoughts and, uh, and, 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 and motivations does this, this creature have? Well, well if, you, if you want the thoughts, like I said, there is the short story, The Things... You can also listen to uh, in an in an audio format from Clark's World Publications, and and if if you want uh, you know that the stupid Prometheus esque aspect of all of it, you kind of have it already in in Prometheus, but you also have kind of a shape shifting alien thingy that just wrecks the place up. Yeah, describe the films in one word. Oof. Shapeshifting, because the two films and the, their tone, also to a part their legacy, kind of keeps shifting from movie to movie. Hey, that shapeshifting, I will steal that from you, but in the sense of shapeshifting quality. <laughs> and and this is why, why you know, Miriam Webster has you <laughs> in Will this... These films survived the test of time, yes, obviously. Maybe Howard Hawks' version has been stolen the, the platform a bit, because also the Howard Hawks version has inspired many films. And oh my god, if you look at the Howard, ha- Howard Hawks version, and at the end, the, the doctor, the scientist man, goes to the antagonist and says something like, Don't you understand my English language? Together we can... Conquer the world and learn so much. And how many goddamn times have we heard this in sci-fi movies in different iterations? Sometimes it's directly to the alien. Sometimes they use the uh, protagonist as the as the proxy. Please, Ripley, for science. But but for a science man, that is kind of a, an understandable point to make. Like, like of course he would want the yeah dumb alien to understand him and, and share his knowledge and find a common tongue. Yeah. It, okay. uh, he's basically the science man of, oh, God, so many of 1950s American sci-fi movies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to, to a point where he was parodied in, in some... <laughs> uh, I don't remember what was... They, was it some Leslie Nielsen yeah. really cheaply made space comedy film or what was it i honestly i can't remember it has this scene where, where the, there is the they are the spaceship there's a flesh-eating alien there there's the science man who tries to explain to the whole rest of the crew of the spaceship that 
you know, they can learn so fr- much from the alien. The alien rips off the uh, sh- science man's <laughs> arm. And he's like, oh, it's just a, a playful little thing. It didn't mean <laughs> any harm. <laughs> oh, right. You really know you're watching the things when... When a whole bunch of Americans freak out for what turns out to be basically just your typical Finnish winter. You really know you're watching the things when Windows and Mac are both equally useless in stopping the virus. Kind of good one, I must admit. <laughs> N- nice, nice touching upon, you know, Carpenter's film. Nobody actually has realistic names. They are just, or, or just, you know, <laughs> kind of a hokey names like Charles and Windows. Uh, yeah, quite odd. Did you like the films? Uh, yes, yes, and, well, to be honest, yes. I know 2011 is the black sheep of all these films, and you are supposed to hate it, but I, I, I must admit, even though I am extremely critical of the 2011, I, and I do think that in many ways it does itself a disservice, and it just should be taken back to a drawing board and make the whole thing again. I still kind of like it. There are things that I like about all of the versions. Most of all, my overall feeling about this film is that they're, as I've said, like pretty boring. <laughs> so, how would you ever rewatch these films? Most definitely for 1982, quite possibly for 1951, and not so likely for 2011. I will not go out of my way to actually just watch these on my own, but if it starts running on the TV, I'd be kind of disappointed to watch it, because I've seen it so many times already, the Carpenter version, and I've done the analysis, I've watched the films, I'm done. I don't need to watch it anymore. Uh, but, but come on, man. Since you don't know who has been assimilated, you have a fear <laughs> of the unknown. In Halloween, you don't know the motivation of Michael Myers. It's the blank slate. I'll, you also I'll watch don't that. know the motivation of the thing. It's it's all assumption. They all assume that it wants to take over the world. A miscommunication. Ka- kind of like uh, my, my Michael Myers accidentally just uh, slips the knife to any, everyone's stomach. Just happens. Well, well, can you prove a criminal intent? No, it's just a whoopsie-daisy story. You, you're, you're just shaming mentally ill. True. Shame on you. Damnation. Would you recommend these films? John Carpenter's 1982, most definitely. It's a, it's a classic. It's one of the best films that Carpenter made. <laughs> has made. It is. Go fuck yourself, man. <laughs> Wow. This, this, this Halloween, Prince of Darkness and and In the Mouth of Madness. That was it. Some of the best work John Carpenter ever did. God damn it. Also huge fan of of Christie. All of them better than Escape from New York. Oh, I was just about to mention Escape from New York. At least that you should have mentioned. So yeah, yeah. 1982, an absolute classic. Everybody should should see it. Everybody should show it to their friends, their, their specific other. Show it to your neighbor. Show it to their neighbor's dog. Everybody's life is happier and more complete after seeing it. Don't, don't show it to the poor dog. 
God damn it, every time John Carpenter directs a movie there, you know, you just know that something's gonna go wrong when there's a husky on the scene. And Alaskan Manamute, to actually, to be exactly specific. Okay, thank you for the correction. <laughs> you're, you're welcome. But it actually is is one of the best dog performances ever given. Holy cow, the, the, how did the, they the do dog, that? Yeah. The, the, dog, the, the dog in that film... Who deserves an Oscar. God damn, I can't remember what was its name. Was it Jed? If I remember correctly, it was Jed. And it's a... Genius. It's a, he, he, he was a dog who performed in whole bunch of well-known dog hero films. Mm, I bet. Yeah, it was like White Fang. And he, he, was, he was a hybrid, actually. To keeping in with the Carpenter's theme of, of genetic purity... Jed was, was a hybrid. He was a hybrid Alaskan Manamute and a wolf. And the thing with, with Jed was that, unlike so many other dogs, he was actually one of the most undog-like dogs. He didn't get distracted. He didn't get excited. He didn't wag his tail when he was doing something correctly. He was just, he was just calm and still. And that's why he's one of the best dog performances in, in movies ever, and you should show it to your dog and to your neighbor's dog and the neighbor's dog's dog. <laughs> um, was it actually the, the same dog? Did you say, Chad? Did they use the same dog in all the scenes where you needed some intellect <laughs> to be shown on the screen? <laughs> 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 you're, 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 you're mixing up the, the, the dog and, and Kurt Russell, <laughs> which I can kind of understand because Kurt Russell also is very hairy in this movie. <laughs> I mean, that face of hair is something where you can, you can just, you can just, you know, dive into it and wrap it around as a comforting blanket around your naked body. <laughs> yeah, you can hide plenty of the things there. Um. Would I recommend these films? 1951? No. 1982? No. 2011? No, also. But as a film historian, as a, as a film buff, yeah, you have to see the thing. But other than that, you can go watch all the better John Carpenter films out there. You can go even see Goddamn Assault on Precinct 13, perhaps. You can go see Halloween. You can go see the fog, even though it's it's quite quite the bore we, we, we as well. Which is nowhere as good as the thing. Let's admit that. Uh, much, well, at least, oh, at least it has a consistent bad guy. <laughs> uh, on on my end, I would actually also recommend 1951. It it has its flaws, but I I do think that if if you watch it as something else, as uh, than as an adaptation of Campbell's short story about a shapeshifting alien, it's actually not that bad of a kind of a typical 1950s sci-fi meddling horror-esque film. It's not as good as something like Creature from the Black Lagoon or The Shrinking Man. Mm. If, if you want to watch a bunch of black and white old American sci-fi movies from the era when America was all rage about, you know, the Red Scare, it's it's not a really a terrible film. 2011, I give it a lukewarm yes. Whoa. It's, 
it's it's not like I I know I know I know I'm I'm supposed to hate the movie. What I did appreciate in that movie also was that they combined the role of the scientist and, and and the biologist into the protagonist to give her something more to do. Yeah, to me, I I didn't need that aspect. I I, I kind of actually liked the fact that MacReady was not a scientist in in Carpenter film. I do admit that at the same time, yeah. Not the per, uh, the best depiction of scientists in Carpenter movies, seeing how what essentially is a blue-collar worker of the community is the one that rises up as the leader and the hero of the film. Yeah. It's 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 kind of what what Carpenter likes to do. When it comes to the 2011, it's not a classic like Carpenter was. And it it is an an unnecessary prequel to a film that really didn't need it. Carpenter that it's basically a film that answers the, the whole question that Carpenter already answered in his movie. Like, but outside of that, outside of the unnecessary nature of it, I do think that it, 2011 is okay enough. A little creature feature. If you have nothing else to do and you have a pack of popcorns, you have a couple of cold ones, like, and you are just looking for something to watch while you you drink your beer and eat your popcorn, it's like it, it's an okay entertainment in that fashion. Strangely, I have to kind of side with the original reviews on the 1982. Put the films in order of preference. 1982, absolutely, like, no questions. The second place goes to 1951, and the third place goes to 2011, which it takes, in my opinion, proudly. It's not entirely worthless endeavor. All right, well, I will go with 1982 as the first one on my list. I will go as the second... The, the thing that irks me about 1951 is this it, it's quite a dull film but I do enjoy watching Margaret Sheridan and Kenneth Toby together even though you know, the cheesy dialogue kind of drags it but uh, I will have to just about put to the second place also like you the 1951 version and that would leave obviously the 2011 version for the last place not necessarily that judgment that the director originally wanted but kind of the judgment you have to give the 2011 yeah hey it's not that bad i I thought it was gonna be an absolute torture show but you know what 2011 version it's kind of fun if you don't have anything better to do yeah. Especially if you've seen the 1982 version, you know, you might enjoy a thing or two. Yeah. It is sad that Hedingen felt that he didn't want to direct another feature film following the 2011 prequel up until, you know, 2020 when he made The Forgotten Battle. The thing prequel is not that bad. It's not don't ever, ever direct anything ever again bad. No, 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 no. But it, it is kind of trapped down into being the same movie because Carpenter's films and the uh, film and the setup that Carpenter's the thing, it, it kind of has no room to do anything else except be the same movie. The Antarctica as a location is way too limiting. Perhaps, or it's just up to like of imagination. 
I mean, wouldn't it be cool if the if the the thing would infiltrate a penguin and then start copying penguins, evil penguins anywhere? Then on to uh, do they have walruses there? Something you know, birds. Which it kind of can't do because in that case, yeah. it have just fly out or you know swimmed away from there. How how funny on on scale of one to ten would it be? If the thing, when it comes in its unavoidable next incarnation, is just gonna be always going more back and more back and more back in the timeline. Because the next logical thing to do, of course, is the the spaceship version of the story. Or, I guess it could follow from the 1982 and see the infiltration of the thing on a city. I actually do think that that could be way more interesting. I actually would be interested to see that film. Hell, it worked pretty well for for the Predator. <laughs> or if you would have the thing, but in a spaceship. Yeah, I, I would actually check it out. I mean, hell, it worked pretty well for Jason Voorhees. <laughs> yeah. Hell, if, if it would be the, the thing, but with dinosaurs. I would most definitely watch that. <laughs> I was just thinking what kind of a fun things we could have if, you know, I think in the 1951 version, was it mentioned in the novel? I'm not sure. But in the 1951 version, there's, there's something about the um, ship being there for at least 100,000 years. So that would still place Antarctica in the cold age, uh, it seems, because Antarctica, at least the tropical version of it, would have been 100 million years ago. So that's a little bit more back in the back in time before we started recording Henrik was in whatsapp like i'm looking at a man who at length and with effort built his own hell with the laughing smiley uh-huh. at, at the end so uh, at, at this point at the end of the episode how do you feel about the the endeavor that you <laughs> in a one way or the other kind of already built up for yourself in i don't even remember how many episodes back it wasn't that bad. This time, this was really kind of off-the-cuff episode. It's always good when we're kind of together trying to figure figure this thing out. And then, even though you're saying entirely the different things, somehow uh, I get to, you know, I guess build in words my argument while you're going on about the masterpiece. So thank you. Well, this must be the only masterpiece in the the podcast history. So there we have it. Finally found it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I must definitely I have dropped masterpiece in in some episode. I must have. Um, I'm not so sure. But anyway, now that this is over and done with, I think I'll go to Steam to play the the re-release of Quake. Gonna have some fun with that. That's a weird call. I, I was I was expecting the thing video game. That could have been it. Which, which honestly, 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 is not that bad. All right. Like okay, yeah, the the, the hidden treasure mechanic doesn't exactly no work because it's it's scripted. So no matter how many blood blood tests you actually you know take from your teammates, it doesn't affect anything because at the, any given scripted moment they will turn out to have been assimilated and you have to take them out but it does have a still quite fun damage mechanic where you at first you have to take the assimilated things held down to zero with you know just your average bullets and then finally kill them off using flamethrowers okay that sounds like it might be actually the most fun adaptation of all of these so 
might hunt it down on Steam or wherever. <laughs> Christ. That, that's a that's a really backhanded compliment. <laughs> anyway, next week some movies again. I guess I'll see you in the next one. Until then. Completely off topic, but did you ever play Exhumed, also known as Power Slave? I didn't. I, I know it's supposed to have some type of a legendary status. So much fun. I, I was I was more of a Duke, Duke Nukem 3D guy myself. Also fun. Yeah, the, the me- mechanics, the physics, everything, it's it's more fun than I would say that in Quake. Well, Quake is more of a horror game compared to Exhumed Power Slave, which is has elements of humor in it. It has, I would say, more advanced game mechanics, like the whole jump high and float in the air and levitate. And, well, there's quite the inventive guns also in the game, so highly recommended. There are some people there that think that it's always just a Quake or Doom clone and nothing could be further from the th- truth, so... Yeah, Quake's biggest hindrance really was the whole John Carmack effect. Like yeah, 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 I, I know, I know. You know, game mechanics are supposed to be the first, uh, the first thing, and nobody gives a shit about the story. But mm. apparently, nobody also gave a shit about the level design or you know coming up with inventive weaponry. Assimilate, 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 assimilates the assimilation. Assimilate, assimilated, 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 assimilation, assimilation, assimilated, 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 assimilating, assimilated, and assimilated, assimilated, and assimilate a thing, assimilation, assimilated, assimilated, assimilated. I guess assimilate. And when was player assimilated? Rautaiset ainekset klassikkoelokuvaan. Tällöin meni.